0: why hello there priests you have found the hardest book review podcast there is where we digest life-changing books we shit out greatness and we change our lives one book at a time are you ready are you ready are you ready let's go and here it is again This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode two of The Wisdom of Crowds by James Geratakashaka. On episode one, we introduced the concept, the crazy fucking idea that crowds actually could be smarter than the smartest experts. James gave us all types of examples from animal abuse to submarines and he sold us. And he told us that crowds need to have four characteristics. They need to have diversity of opinion. They need to have independence. They need to have decentralization and aggregation. And now we're gonna learn about the value of diversity. So Ransom E. Olds in 1899 started his own car company, but was failing so hard. Uh, he had some asshole financier, financier, however you say that shit, and they could never agree. And he was also like super entrepreneur guy and had horrible ADD and he made 11 prototypes. And his, his financier wanted him to go to the high-end market. But olds, he thought a budget car made more sense. And then... A fire burned down his warehouse and all of his prototypes but the budget car got burned alive. Hmm, very convenient that the only thing that survived was your budget prototype, Mr. Olds. In the wake of the fire, Olds rushed the prototype into production. It was basically like a little more than a carriage, but for $600, it was well within the reach of many Americans. He also uh, was like a marketing genius, and so he got a driver to drive 800 miles to the Manhattan Auto Show, and he raced his car in the Daytona race. In 1904, he sold 4,000. Then the next year, he sold 6,500. Then he became so rich that he built a garage in his house that I do kid you not, spun around so he wouldn't have to back out of his fucking garage. Because Olds, it turned out, had designed the first mass-produced automobile in American history. And at that time, shit was so crazy. You know, there were electric cars, steam cars. There were over a hundred different options. All different. Because there were no conventions about what was best. And it kind of reminds me of the crypto market right now. Like, You know, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum. There's all these other like really smart math and coding people that are like doing these interesting projects, like smart contracts and like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to do crop insurance for for people who don't have access to banks. And I'm like, that sounds good, but I don't know anything, dude. Like I shit outside one time. I don't know if that's right. So that's how it was. You know, people are like, oh yeah, steam cars, of the future, battery cars. But as time passes, the market winnows out The winners and losers effectively choosing which technologies will flourish and which will disappear most companies fail at the end of the day a few players are left standing and in control of most of the market and this seems like a wasteful way of developing new technology and there's no guarantee that at the end of the process the best technology will win so why do we do it that way well for the answer consider a hive of bees and this is such a fucking good example so listen up a typical bee colony can search six or more kilometers from the hive and if, if there's a flower patch within two kilometers of the hive the bees have a better than half chance at finding it so what that's saying is like you have a fucking random beehive in the midst of random flowers or random forest or whatever if there's a if there's flowers Within two kilometers, the bees have over a 50% chance of finding it. And I will say, I'm not sure why James used the metric system, you know, giving in to societal pressure, I guess, because before you judge someone who doesn't use the metric system, you should walk 1.609344 kilometers in their shoes. But how do bees do this? You know, They don't don't sit around and have a collective discussion about where they should go. Okay, Buzz. Based on past historical trends, Buzz. And new market data, Buzz. And synergy, Buzz. Gotta have lots of synergy, Buzz. I think we should go over here. No. Instead, a hive sends out a host of scout bees to search the surrounding area. And when a scout bee has found a nectar source that seems strong he will come back and do a waggle dance and the intensity of which is shaped in some way by the excellence of the nectar. So just like a stripper, the vigorousness of the dancing is directly related to how much money the scout bee gets. The waggle dance attracts other forager bees which follow the first forager and foragers who have found less good sites attract fewer followers and eventually abandon their sites entirely so imagine you know you're a forager bee and you find five flowers and you come back and you're like look man look at my fucking dance and then you go over there and you see an enrique and Enrique is just covered in pollen he's hammered he's getting fucking crazy and everybody's just like oh shit and you're like no look at my dance and then they're like fuck you and then everybody goes and follows Enrique because Enrique found a public garden with 8000 flowers but the result is that bee foragers end up distributing themselves across different nectar sources almost perfectly relative to time and energy that they put into searching holy shit oh my god that is such a good example wtf death what is important is the way the colony gets to all that collective intellect because it does not rationally consider all alternatives and then determine an ideal foraging pattern it can't do that because it doesn't have any idea where the different flower patches are so instead It sends out scouts in many different directions and trusts that at least one of them will find the best patch. Return, do a good dance, and everybody will make it rain on that hoe. In the first stage of the process, the rational thing is just to send out as many bees as possible. And you can think of the countless would-be automakers who tried and failed as the foragers. But one of the most important things here is diversity and not in like a sociological sense like, you know, we need to have more diversity in our company, um, which, you know, I'm not making a comment on that, but um, but rather in like a conceptual and cognitive sense. So like you want diversity of the entrepreneurs, so the people who are starting businesses who are coming up with the ideas, so you end up with meaningful differences among those ideas rather than minor variations so you want you know you want people starting companies that maybe were farmers maybe they were they were accountants maybe they were competitive athletes they were in the military you know that that like net cast by those diverse people on all the different things out there that could be companies is so much wider than if you just had harvard mbas because their backgrounds are very similar, they all have been taught the same things. You know, instead you got those liquor store owners, some M- some MBAs, some art majors, some coders, and then on the on the funding side, so the people who invest in the businesses, same thing. Diversity. Uh, what makes a system successful is the ability to generate a lot of losers and winners, and then to recognize them as such and kill them off. So that's what they're doing with the with the bees. You know, go out, you come back. You're barely moving your butt because you don't find, find any flowers, and everyone's like, "Oh, Jesus Christ, dude! Come on, man! I, I thought I thought better. If you look at Enrique, I think he's having sex with 17 men bees right now. And then you're like, I know, I know, but I couldn't find anything. That failure quickly, and you get killed off because you end up, you know, you just like fuck it. You just follow Enrique. That approach is what we're talking about because sometimes the messiest approach is the wisest. And if this sounds similar to anti-fragile, it is, because it's the fucking way. As Gucci Mane would say, pay my tithes at church from hustling. Even the pastors know we thuggin'. Amen. Diversity helps because it actually adds perspectives that would otherwise be absent, and because it takes away, or at least weakens, some of the destructive characteristics that can happen in groups. So like... Think about um, right now, everybody's doing this circle jerk like, oh, socialism's good. Socialism, communism, like, how bad can that be? Well, if 10%, we'll say, of the government had escaped from a socialist country, you're a lot less likely for them to just decide, you know what, (laughs) you're right, we should do socialism. And, And diversity is especially important in smaller groups. Because a few biased individuals can exert undue influence. Now this is one of those counterintuitive mind fucks. Some psychologists had a bunch of people of different ability solve some hard problems. That's the most highest level summary of a psychology study you can imagine. But um, he made a group of smart people and a group of not smart people uh, based on I'm sure some very rigorous testing standards. Um, and and then he had them compete and solve those hard problems and so obviously the smart people beat the not smart people but then he did something crazy he took half the group of smart people and half the group of regular people and the more diverse group won even though the sum of the parts was less than all of the smart group but the thing is the point of Page's experiment I guess his name was Page uh, is that Diversity on its own is valuable so that the simple fact of making a group diverse makes it better at problem solving. Because, you know, I bet the markers that he was using to determine what was smart was like education. Like, okay, cool. So everybody that has a PhD come over here. Well, everybody who has a PhD has gone through the United States PhD system. And so, when all those people vote, they vote like someone who's gone through the United States PhD system. But when you take half of them and then you add in plumbers, you add in people that run their own business, you add in con men, you add in muscle car enthusiasts, you get a, a lot wider view because sometimes the answer is actually not contained in the PhD program of the United States. But this is, this is difficult. To believe and runs counter to our basic intuitions heretical heretical heretical, or not it's the truth the value of expertise is in many contexts overrated okay so the, the way that i see that is like imagine you've got one super smart so like most of the time has really really good opinions leader and 30 people under him or her that don't really push back Because the super smart leader is kind of like an authoritarian dick. And like if you push back on his or her ideas, uh, we'll just say she. She gets fucking super pissed at you for like four days. And then like you have to go start getting her coffee and stuff. And so you've learned to pick your battles. You've learned that only if she is suggesting something so stupid do you push back. Because what is easier to say, Oh, yeah, like, yeah, I I mean, that sounds okay to me. But then if the idea fails, just fucking blame the boss, duh. Or let's say it's something where, you know, you disagree and you are right. Do you want to spend all your social capital uh, to push back on an idea that, like, really only nebulously affects you and, you know, kind of falls more into the greater good category? Like, let's say you're picking a new company name and your boss suggests, like, the stupidest fucking name ever um <laughs> do you really want to push back uh especially if your boss will be mad at you and ultimately still pick their own ideas because um, you know he or she'll still probably pick their own idea but now they hate you so um that is that is why like you know effectively that group it, it's not a group it is one person making a decision so um you know on average, that one person, if they're the super genius expert, is gonna be really, really good. But they won't beat a group that contains their ideas, the expert ideas, and everyone else's. And, you know, he, he makes sure to clarify, like, experts obviously exist. And so, I'm not saying that you should ignore experts. Uh, you know, I'm just saying that in a room full of 30 people, 15 experts, and 15 normal people, who all have the ability to sway the decision that's important, um that group wins and you know i obviously don't want don't want the internet to be able to vote through reddit on like doing back surgery on me but if we still cling to the idea that if only we could find the right expert we could get this all figured out maybe we should open our minds which brings us to The Bay of Pigs. So I had to Google this because I'm not the most educated on politics. But uh, basically, the United States funded some revolutionaries to invade Cuba. And it was a no-no and a horrible failure. Uh, Everybody got mad at them. And the United States had a black eye on their reputation around the world. But as this was dissected, there were some interesting things that happened in the planning of these operations. One participant says, the important thing about groupthink is that it works not so much by censoring dissent as by making dissent seem somehow improbable. Our meetings took place in a curious atmosphere of assumed consensus. Even if no consensus existed, only the appearance of one, the group's sense of cohesiveness worked to turn the appearance into reality and in doing so helped dissolve whatever doubts members of the group might have. And um, you know this process obviously works all the more powerfully in situations where the group's not very diverse and they all pretty much probably think the same. When the pressure to conform is at work, the person changes his or her opinion not because he actually believes something different, but because it's easier to change his opinion than challenge the group. So this is what I was talking about before. Like if some domineering leader puts forth a dumbass plan, but I'll lose helly social capital challenging it, and if it fails. It isn't my fault. It looked, and I look around and like, it looks like everybody agrees. Like I'm seeing a bunch of people nod, like no one's pushing back. So like, like what? Like I'm definitely not gonna push too hard. And um, just just a crazy fucking psychological experiment to illustrate this. Um, so I, I actually read this experiment in AP Psychology because I've always been a genius. Um, Solomon Ash asked uh, some groups of people to judge which of three lines was the same size as a line on a white card. So uh, there were groups of seven to nine people, and then one one of them was the subject, and the rest were in on it. They were Confederates. And then uh, they all sat down in a row, and, this, they, and he put the subject at the end of the row and uh, asked each person to give their choice out loud. So there were 12 cards in the experiment. Um, for the first two, the Confederates all picked the correct lines. So you know it goes down, which of these three lines is the same size and then you know everyone's like this one and it's like it's so obvious like yep and then it gets down to you you're in the experiment you're like okay then the second one same thing but beginning with the third the confederates purposely started picking wrongly so now you see everybody you know eight other people be like this line's longest you're no, it's fucking not. But you're confused. The unwitting subjects changed their head positions. They stood up to scrutinize the lines better. They joked nervously. Ha <laughs> my, ha, uh, my glasses are acting up. But most importantly, a significant number of subjects simply went all went along with the group. They're like, well, I must be mentally retarded today. Um, yeah, you're right. You guys are right. And I actually... I actually remember learning about this experiment and uh, resolving that even if I was the only one standing on the side of truth, I'd rather stand for truth than conform to idiocy. Uh, and so uh, that was in high school. And then fast forward, I remember I was in I was in a class in college where I was just wrong. And uh, so we all had to vote, kind of like he was talking about. And there were 30 people in the class-ish, and there were three choices. And... You know, the first choice was 25 people. They raised their hand. The next choice, four people raised their hand. The last choice, I loudly and proudly raised my hand. This is my moment. This is what I read about in, in AP psychology. I will not conform. But then I was just fucking wrong, and everybody thought I was an idiot. But I was an idiot with principles. Suck it. Back to the book. Ultimately, diversity contributes not just by adding different perspectives to the group but also by making it easier for individuals to say what they really think so we saw how crowds are awesome Um, we've learned so far that diversity makes them even better but we need to explore sometimes uh, when the crowd isn't great and why the next ingredient independence is important chapter three monkey see monkey do in the early part of the 12th century god damn it say 1100s the american naturalist william bb came upon a strange sight in the guyana jungle the 1200 corpses of everyone from the people's temple oh oh wait that was 800 years later um incorrect he came across a group of army ants moving in a huge circle the circle was 1200 feet in circumference and it took each ant around two and a half hours to complete the loop the ants went round and round for two days until most of them dropped dead baby saw what biologists call a circular mill Uh, the mill was created when an army of ants finds themselves separated from their colony once they are lost they obey the simple rule follow the ant in front of you The the result is a mill Um, you know, this like basically the same principle as, you know, you light one Buffalo on fire. They all get scared and run off the cliff because, you know, normally ants are good. Uh, but the simple tool of follow the ant in front of you that makes you so successful is also responsible for the demise and you getting trapped in a circular mill. Because the difference of what we've talked about so far is we've kind of assumed that all humans are independent, and you know, and that is one of the ingredients of a successful group. Um, independence is important for intelligent decision making for two reasons. One, it keeps the mistakes that people make from becoming correlated. Uh, so you know, if that genius at the top, if he makes a mistake. Uh, And then he's like, I'll fucking kill you if you disagree with me. So you're like, fuck you, Ned. I will agree with you. And then, oh, he made a mistake. He was wrong. Uh, Two is independent individuals are more likely to have new information rather than the same old data everyone is already familiar with. So, yes, super genius dick at the top. He has a lot of information, but not as much as the sum total in the minds of everybody else in the group plus what's in his mind the smartest groups then are made up of people with diverse perspectives who are able to stay independent of each other but independence is pretty hard to achieve and he rolls into the concept of social proof now if you want a full exhaustive summary on this listen to the influence episode Um, but social proof basically is the concept that um, think of a standing ovation everybody stands up what's that pressure Feel you feel that pressure. You you're a fucking bitch if you don't stand up. So then you stand up and you're clapping for some some fucking dude you don't even know at some award ceremony that you are forced to go to. Um, you know, if you look around and there's a fire but no one's panicking, you kind of assume that you know there's there's no fire. Um, and many times social proof is good. You know, you see a bunch of cars hitting their brakes, you assume there's something. But sometimes Somebody is texting, panics, hits their brakes. Then someone else hits their brakes. Then someone else hits their brakes, and all of a sudden, a traffic jam happened because Susie dropped her phone. In a, a different example, but equally good, is is mutual fund managers. So, you know, mutual fund managers are basically are all doing investments, and they all believe that they can generate uh, better returns than just randomly buying shit in the market. But what ends up happening is that they all kind of converge. To similar outlooks, so Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, fucking whatever, they all put forth their market predictions every year, and they really do. It's it's pretty crazy um, because no one can predict anything. God damn it! All hail Rat Taleb. But um, it, you know what ends up happening is that if one company predicts like radically different. Everybody panics and freaks out. And then like the second quarter, the predictions are similar. The the third quarter, you know, the predictions are very, very close because, you know, everybody's converging to that same strategy. Like, oh shit, like Goldman Sachs, you know, they're thinking something like, you know, they can't be wrong. But as a result, managers anxious to project protect their jobs, they you know, they mimic each other. Because you know, if if you're part of 15 people who who make a dumbass decision, you know, you can't fire 15 people. But that shrinks not only the range of possible investments, but also the overall intelligence of the market. So we need to ask, what happens when there's no independence? Now, James is equal part Ernest Hemingway and Philosopher King, and he just fucking pulls out these amazing examples from the sky. And we're going to talk about plank road fever. Now, the summary... Is that in the 1800s, uh, railroads were awesome at connecting towns, uh, but if you didn't live in town, like fucking everybody, um, it didn't really help you that much because you know the roads still had fucking huge craters in them, you know, and you know before the rail before the railroads, trade was really limited by you know how close you were to a town and how far you could ride a horse in a day and so uh couple upon that that all the roads are horrible so you know you either need to walk or take your horse over like crazy fucking terrain and and so you know what if it was a smooth nice road if you lived outside of a town you could get to in into town in an hour with the current roads you know it'd take you eight hours and then it actually doesn't help you that there's a railroad because you have to you still have to turn around because you got to go home, and so the big problem was they were trying to fix, they trying to fix the roads, but like it was 1800s, bitch. They ain't got no bulldozers. So some guy, he thought he figured it out with plank roads. So it's like two, it's like think of like two four by fours, like piece, like two pieces of lumber with planks over them and like nailed down, whatever. Like think of like a really shitty deck. I don't know. Um, But it swept the country. Within a decade, there were 352 plank road companies just in New York and more than a thousand in the U.S. as a whole. But unfortunately, the whole business was built on an illusion. Plank roads did not last the eight years they were advertised. They lasted two to four, which made them too expensive for companies to maintain. So they were all abandoned so think about that you know for year one year two year three you're like shit this fucking solved the problem and you're looking around and you're getting reinforced that you're like yes this is solving the problem because plank road fever was it was a vivid example of a phenomenon that economists call an information cascade so the first road was a success. The first road was a success, as were those in the immediate time after that first road. You know, so still within the first four years before the cancer was revealed. So people who were looking around for a solution to the problem of local roads had one ready made at hand. As more plank roads became built, their legitimacy became more entrenched. And it was years before the fundamental weaknesses of the road they didn't last long enough and no company wanted to waste their fucking money on them became obvious but by that time plank roads were built all over the country why did this happen uh, the problem with an information cascade is that after a certain point it becomes rational for people to stop paying attention to their own knowledge like maybe cars are just an illusion and we're going to find out they're bullshit but probably not so a- after a certain point like why waste the mental horsepower to just to question if a car is actually an illusion? But this is tricky because everyone thinks that people are making decisions based on what they know, but in fact, they are making decisions based on what they think the people who came before them knew. Instead of aggregating information like a market or a voting system would, a cascade becomes a sequence of informed choices so that collectively, the group's the group ends up making a bad decision. And information cascades aren't always bad, he says. He gives an example of the guy who created the first mass-produced screw, and he led this information cascade that fostered mass production. But a word of caution to this tale, if Hercules fights, you will fail. Um, What? Hey, there. So there was an unnerving idea at the heart of that screw guy's story. If his screw was adopted because he used influence and authority we are lucky his screw was good and it was basically purely chance that he got the answer right but this tells us uh regarding new social norms or technologies that are driven by cascades no reason to think that the decisions we make on average are good so as i was going through this i was actually really thinking about the crypto market like you know there's a lot like that plank road analogy seems pretty fucking perfect to me or it could be totally legit but like we're looking around and man these plank roads are fucking solving everything yeah decentralized blockchain boy but maybe we're gonna get into it and be like oh yeah well this one critical part that we didn't think through which is no one uses it like a currency (laughs) okay well i guess this whole thing's built on an illusion and it's valueless. Maybe. A lot of smart people disagree with me. I don't think that's even my opinion. That's just, this is fear that got popped into my head when I read this perfect analogy of plank road fever. So should we just lock ourselves up in our room and stop paying attention to what others are doing? Uh, but he says, he says no. A lot of times imitation works. Um, so he, you know, he lives in New York City and uh, two times a week he has to move his car at 11 a.m. because of street cleaning. Uh, But sometimes he'll come out at 1045 and he'll see no cars have been moved. So he won't move his car because he'll know, you know, that the crowd has understood that that the cleaning has been canceled that day. Um, So then he, he walks through a lot more dynamics on the like that we covered on the influence episode. So go listen to that. But I mean, the summary is a lot of times imitation works and we have to use rules of thumb but but be aware occasionally if the conditions are closer to mass imitation uh, the wisdom of crowds ain't so wise so now we are seeing that this whole issue is a little more complicated than just crowds work all the time so he's walking us through some examples of when when crowds are awesome but also what what ingredients are necessary in this recipe of wisdom of crowds Um, You know, just like if you leave out the flour, your food sucks. We've seen that diversity and independence are necessary. The next two in those four required themes, because he's a genius, is uh, decentralization and aggregation. Chapter four, putting the pieces together. The CIA, Linux, and the art of decentralization after World War II. The United States had a very fragmented intelligence machine. And intelligence in the sense means spies. We had spies all up in this bitch. None of them were fucking communicating. They're out there doing hits on unsuspecting civilians. We have to deny it. Throw them out into the cold. It was chaos. So eventually some guy, uh, a general named Wild Bill Donovan, which, damn, I, that's a pretty good nickname, Wild Bill, uh, made some speech that ended up turning into the CIA. Uh, over the next 50 years, the intelligence world evolved into an alphabet soup of organizations. The NSA, the CIA, the FBI, DARPA, and more. And until September 11th, 2001, the flaws of this system were overlooked. The intelligence community had failed to anticipate the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, and the 1998 bombings of the U.S. Embassy in Kenya, and the USS Cole in Yemen. But not until September 11th did the failure of the U.S. intelligence system seem undeniable. One has to wonder, given the almost complete failure of the intelligence community community to anticipate any of the four major terrorist attacks Is it not possible that organizing the intelligence community differently would have at the very least improved its chances of recognizing the attacks? That at least was the conclusion that Congress reached. Better information sharing between agencies would have produced a better result. But this bitch, Wild Bill, he, maybe it's not him. I don't fucking know. Some guy in the CIA said, probably not Wild Bill, says decentralization has led the United States astray. Centralization would put things right. No! In challenging the virtues of decentralization, Shelby, I guess his name was Shelby, uh, was challenging an idea. That in the past 15 years has seized the imagination of businessmen, academics, scientists, and technologists everywhere. The world was decentralizing. So what the fuck was going on in the intelligence world? How they so shitty? Because you know the wisdom of crowds that we've talked about so far. You know it just takes decentralization as a given. You know it's a, it's intrinsic in this. And you know you got this you got a crowd of self-interested, independent people working in this decentralized way coming up with this collective solution that's better than any other solution like why is this decentralized intelligence agencies like why does that not satisfy that you know american intelligence agents were self-interested independent people working in a decentralized way so what was the problem was decentralization really the problem but before we answer that um, we need to define decentralization in a decentralized system, power does not fully reside in one central location, and many of the important decisions are made by individuals based on their own local and specific knowledge rather than an om- omniscient or far seeing planner. Decentralization focuses on and is in turn fed by specialization of labor, interest, and attention. So, what that's basically saying is that there's no central person being like, hey, like think of a tribe, like a tribe of 200 Native Americans in 1500, whatever. You know, they have a certain amount of need for bows, for arrows, for arrowheads. And but it's it's not the chief saying, "Hey, you need to make this many arrowheads." It's each of the little tribal warlords saying like, "Hey man, you know, I'm I, you know, I'd like to go into battle with 15 arrows and I only have 7, so I need you guys to make eight more arrows for me and so uh even further in that you know i make arrowheads someone else makes the shaft someone else makes you know the feathers whatever because connected to this assumption is that the closer a person is to the problem the more likely he or she is to have a good solution to it you know the commander on the ground is always right so instead of the chief trying to pick how many arrows that you know the fucking eight-year-old kid is gonna make You have the warlord who's closest to it who says, hey, okay, I got all my seven men, you know, they all each need seven arrows. This is how many you need to make, kid. Decentralization's great strength is that it encourages independence and specialization on the one hand, while still allowing people to coordinate their activities and solve difficult problems. Decentralization's great weakness is that there's no guarantee that valuable information, which is in uncovered in one part of the system, will find its way through the rest of the system. To accomplish this, any crowd, whether it be a market, corporation, or intelligence agency, needs to find the right balance between the two imperatives: making individual knowledge globally and collectively useful, while still allowing it to remain resolutely specific and local. So, what's basically walking us into is that the, you know there's those four ingredients of a successful crowd. So, you know, when you've got a really good crowd, you've got this diversity, you've got this independence, you've got this decentralization. So it sounds like the intelligence agency would have it figured out, but it's missing the fourth ingredient, the fourth theme that James lays out, which is aggregation, which is some mechanism exists to sample the gut feel of the masses so just because you have all those fucking people that are in the intelligence agency well that doesn't really matter if there's like 50 alphabet soup agencies none of them share data now this is kind of like when we, when we uh and this podcast is sponsored by yellowtail wine um But this is kind of like when we uh, did the Extreme Fear episode and Jeff Wise was just such a fucking good author and was like so confusing to follow. But like we made it through. Uh, James is a really good author, too. So before we answer that CIA question, uh, he's going to go in a tiny bit deeper rabbit hole into decentralization. Linux. In 1991, Linus Torvald created his own Unix operating system and dubbed it Linux. He then released the source code he had written to the public so everyone out there could see what he had done. More importantly, he attached a note that read, if your efforts are freely distributable, I'd like to hear from you so I can add them to the system. This was a propitious, I had to Google that, it means a fucking important decision. Of the first 10 people to download Linux, five sent back bug fixes and code improvements. Now that's fucking insane, by the way. What a high percentage but over time this improvement process became institutionalized as thousands of programmers working for free contributed thousands of minor and major fixes making linux more reliable and robust unlike windows which is owned by microsoft linux is owned by no one when a problem arises with linux it only gets fixed if someone on his or her own offers a good solution In the traditional corporate model, management hires the best employees, pays them to work full time, gives them direction of what problems to work on, and hopes for the best. This is not a bad model. It has the great virtue of making it easy to mobilize people to work on a particular problem and also allows companies to get very good at doing things they know how to do, but it also necessarily limits the number of possible solutions, both because of mathematical reality there's only so many workers and because of politics and bureaucracy you know the CFO fucking hates Google Chrome so the whole company will never use Google Chrome we're gonna use Internet Explorer Linux is different because given enough eyeballs all bugs are shallow what that means is when you're you've got an open source system sometimes shit gets fucked up and that's called a bug But and sometimes bugs are really complicated But now imagine that you're a developer working for Windows and you're working on a program and you can't figure out the bug. And then you go and then you're like, fuck, and you ask your best friend who's also a developer and they can't figure out the bug. And then you ask one other person on your team, they can't figure out the bug. And then you go to your whole five-person team, they can't figure out the bug, you give up. But now, let's say that instead of you working full-time on this, there's 8,000 people who spend an hour on it. Don't you think that one of those 8,000 people is gonna be like, oh yeah, this is just like this project it did over here. And then we just did this, and then we just like move this around, and then like we figured it out. In the way it operates, in, in fact, Linux is not all that different from a market. As we saw on, in chapter two on diversity, like a bee colony, it sends out lots of foragers and assumes that one of them will find the best route to the flower fields. This is without a doubt. Less efficient than simply trying to define the best route to the field, or even the pick, or even picking the smartest forager and letting him go. After all, if hundreds or thousands of programmers are spending their time trying to come up with a solution that only a few of them are going to find, that's many hours wasted. It could have been spent on something else. So for those 7,999 developers, they wasted that hour. Damn it. For that one developer, they got it figured out. But as a whole, that system is anti-fragile. You let a thousand flowers bloom and then pick the one that smells the sweetest. And back to the CIA. An examination that on the surface looks like a failure of decentralization. When it comes to the problems of the U.S. intelligence community before September 11th, the problem, James says, was not decentralization. The problem was the kind of decentralization that... That the community had been practicing what was missing in the intelligence community was any real means of aggregating not just the information but also judgments in other words there was no mechanism to tap into the collective wisdom of national security agency nerds cia spooks and fbi agents there was decentralization but not aggregation so What that's basically saying is, you know, if everybody works for this company, but you're so fucking siloed that you never share information and you never learn anything, and then everybody is basically like they're on their own, that's what was happening there. There was no method for me to raise my hand and be like, hey, I think it's Bin Laden. There's none of that. Everybody who thought it was Bin Laden had to come to that idea separately, and there was no mass consensus. And uh, this Dick Shelby, who was managing this this uh, CIA, he was trying all types of stuff that, that James says is stupid. Like, he was trying to centralize everything. Um, but, like, what they really needed to do was just share data, collaborate. Um, James suggests potentially a betting market on terrorist attacks, but, you know, everyone's like has moral problems with that. But, like, the highest level is you have to be de- decentralized, but you have to also have a way that you can, you know, take a pulse of all those decentralized people or you just have a thousand people in silos so holy shit we now know the four ingredients of an effective wise crowd is diversity of opinion independence decentralization and aggregation and now my priests, we move into multiple examples of how this works in the real world it's gonna get crazy I tell the story of when someone got paralyzed and just flexed so hard that they weren't paralyzed anymore and continued to play rugby. But if you want to learn about that, tune in next time on the last and final episode of the Wisdom of Crowds. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my friendies is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.